Well, good morning. Welcome to Westway. I'm so thankful that you're here with us this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church. And I love, uh, I love Christmas time, and I love talking about the hope that we have in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about lots of things. We're going to talk about different Old Testament prophecies and what they mean for us and, and why that matters to us. So I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to go, up ahead, go ahead and open it to Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll be there um, in a few minutes. But before we, before we do that, let me, let me ask, how many of you journal when you read your Bible? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you journal when you read your Bible? Okay, so I'm kind of paying attention right now. Um, Next year, in, early, or in late January, we're going to begin a study through the Gospel of Mark. And we're putting together um, something uh, for our church body, to, uh, kind, of a, kind of a handout, kind of a guide. And if you journal, what, what we would love to do is talk with you over the next couple weeks about asking you to contribute to what we're going to be providing to our church body. Um, one of the things that, that we believe here at Westway, is, um, is that everyone has been gifted um, by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. And that looks like lots of different things. And there are times where we don't necessarily take advantage of all of those giftings. So journaling, believe it or not, that's a gift. Like what you write about what you read in the Bible is a gift. It's a gift for you, and it could be a gift for someone else. So if you are a journaler, please come and, I, like, I paid attention to who raised their hand, so I know you, um, but it would just do better if you would come and talk to me, and we'll talk a little bit about what that um, looks like for the Gospel of Mark. One of my, I grew up watching the Charlie Brown Christmas. Anyone else, Charlie Brown Christmas? They get this measly, piddly-looking Christmas tree up on the stage. And Charlie Brown is feeling bad about it. And he says, I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. And that's where you hear that noise, that want-want noise in the background. Um, I guess I don't know, really know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And of course, Linus comes out and he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. So this month, what we're going to talk about is what Christmas is really about. And it's our desire as a church to, to not just tell you what the Bible says, but it's our desire as a church to help you engage with the Bible. So you can read and you can study the Bible um, on your own in small groups and learn and see what the Bible is really about. And a huge part of understanding what the Bible is about, like the stories that we're going to read today, a huge part of that is kind of understanding some of the backstory understanding some of the history behind the, the things that we read. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament is filled with prophecies and promises about a Savior. And they talked about who he was and where he would be born and what he would do. And they talked about all of those details. But it's not just something that was written a long time ago. These weren't just words that were used in the New Testament to sort of prove that the Old Testament was true. These ancient words are finding their, finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And that is what we're going to be spending our time with this December. We're beginning our series with one of the most known uh, Christmas texts in the entire Bible. I know I said go to Isaiah, but I'm actually going to start in Matthew. And it'll make sense in a second. So this is Matthew. See, if you're using the Bible, the YouVersion Bible app, this is all laid out for you. 
okay? So this is Matthew. This is chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her publicly. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is verse 22. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, a phrase that we that's that we use in our day um, is hyperlink. Like if you're ever if you're on the internet and you know how like there's a word that's a different color and you click on it, it takes you somewhere else. That's called a hyperlink. And what's happening in Matthew is this last verse in chapter one that I just read is a hyperlink to somewhere else in the Bible. And one of the things that if you've been around for a while, one of the things that I will always encourage you to do is when you see those hyperlinks. I want to encourage you to click on it. I want to encourage you to go back and, and find where else it was in the Bible and try and understand why, why is the, in this case, why, why is Matthew quoting this prophecy? Why does that matter? Talking about the prophecies of Jesus. And, and D.A. Carson has this to say about prophecies of Jesus. These prophecies are not just combinations of predictions. Then the event happens. They use the contemporary situations and realities of the prophets to point to the future and deliverance by the Messiah. So here's, here's what all that means. Sometimes we hear about like Old Testament prophecies and we think maybe that, that all of these prophets that had given these prophecies over time, like, like there was this scroll somewhere and like God comes to them and, and tells them something that's going to happen in the future about the Messiah. And then this prophet goes and he, he, he maybe goes and finds another prophet who had that scroll. And then they just list it down. Right? And sometimes I think we have this mindset, this attitude that as Jesus is coming into the world and as he's fulfilling his mission, somewhere there's this checklist. Yep. Made that one. Yep. Made that one. Yep. Made that one. And that's not what was happening with these prophecies. See, these prophecies were given in like a specific time and in a specific place. There was something happening in Isaiah's life that caused him to give this prophecy. This thing is called like context. There's something happening. Like he gave that, he gave that prophecy for a reason. And it's sort of our job as Christians, as people who want to know and understand the Bible, as people who want to know and understand God's heart for us as people, it kind of becomes our job to do a little bit of, a, a little bit of research. And the funny thing is we like doing this research when it's about our favorite TV show. 
Like, I don't know what happens in your house when you're watching TV, but what happens in my house when we're watching TV is we see an actor and we're kind of like, where was that actor? Um, what else was that actor in? And we kind of have this conversation. And then I don't know, I, usually it's Anne because um, she's faster at this than I am. Like within about three seconds of that conversation, she's pulled her phone out and like she's starting to text that actor, right? We love to do that. What I want to encourage you and challenge you to do this morning and throughout this whole month, and actually beyond this month, I want to encourage you to, to seek out those hyperlinks as you're reading the Bible. To have just as much of a passion for learning God's word, for learning about the, the characters and the histories of the people that the Bible's talking about, I want to encourage you to have that as much of a passion as, as you have for the things that you watch on TV. One of the things that we're going to find is, um, is these prophets were people like us. They had real hardships. They were in the midst of difficult situations. It's no different than us. And just like our own stories, their stories deserve to be heard. And what really is going on here is when we read these stories, what we're learning is um, life is not about us. See, it's very easy for us to read the Gospels. It's very easy for us to read the Christmas story. And it's easy for us to say, well, Jesus came to save me from my sins. That's true. But he also came to save other people from their sins. See, the Bible isn't just about us. Life is not just about us, regardless of what your Instagram page has to say about it. We need to see that there is a story outside of ourselves. We need to see that we have been invited into this story. Author Steve Cuss says this, without understanding the story of Isaiah, we won't see why the good news to jo- what we won't see why the good news to Joseph and Mary was good news, and we won't understand why it is good news for us. Does that make sense? See, why was Isaiah saying this? What was, he, what was he pointing the people in his day to? Why did that matter for them? And when we, when we read and we understand these stories, what it allows us to do is, is to see Christmas as more than just some cultural thing we celebrate. Do you, do you see that even when you go to, go to a store that's like not a Christian organization, you know they're celebrating Christmas, Right? Now, they might call it the holidays because there's 82 million other things that we celebrate in December. But ultimately, our culture knows that there is something about this month that we are to celebrate. And I think there are times where we can get wrapped up in that. It's December. Time to break out the Christmas tree. It's December. I got to find my nativity set. It's December, I gotta go to church because that's what good people do in the month of December is they go to church. And I'm glad you're here, but we're not celebrating Jesus' birth because it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's not why we do what we do on Sundays in December. We're celebrating Jesus because he changes the lives of people that know him. We're celebrating Jesus because he changes the lives of people who follow him and who love them. A few weeks ago, you're wondering when I'm going to read Isaiah. 
A few weeks ago, we finished our, our series on Judges. And maybe you remember that the last words in the, in the book. It said, in those days, the people had no king, and they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You remember that? See, we would then think, like, and you would read through the rest of the Bible, and we've talked about this, you would then think that the solution is just a good king. We had a good leader. We had a qualified leader. If we had a leader with integrity, then everything is going to be okay. But when you flip through the next several books of the Old Testament after Judges, what you see is not that. You see Saul did a few good things, mostly not. You see David did a lot of good things, but a lot of really crummy things. And then there's this progression where the kings aren't really any better than the people were. So we have to ask this question, right? Like, what, what's going on here? Why is all of this taking place? I thought we were supposed to have a king. Well, they're pointing to another king, and that king is Jesus. But here's one of the things that happened in the midst of all of these kings. There was, they brought all of God's people together under one nation that lasted for about two and a half kings, and then, the, then the, the nation broke into two. There was Judah in the north and Israel in the south. And that's really important for what Isaiah is talking about here. So we find this unity brings all of the nations together. And we think finally God's people are going to do what they're supposed to do. But they separate, they break. So at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 7, we're learning that Judah is about to be attacked by the Israelites and the Aramites. Okay, so they're about to fight each other. They're about to be attacked. And King Ahaz is this guy, if we were to go back to 2 Kings 16, we would see that he was not a really good guy. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that mean? He worshiped Baal, he sacrificed his own son in the fire, and he offered other sacrifices and burned incense to Baal. So Ahaz is not a good guy. So here he is, and he's about to be attacked. And God comes to Ahaz through Isaiah. And he says this, be careful, be quiet, don't fear because of them. Within 65 years, those kingdoms coming against you are gonna be destroyed. God is talking to Ahaz and he's telling him through Isaiah to trust in God. Don't worry, be calm, trust in me. And then God reaches out to Ahaz again, and he says, hey, ask me for a sign to prove it to you. Ask me for a sign, Ahaz, whatever. Do you just ask? And Isaiah does this really interesting kind of this, this humble, where it's false humility. He's like, I would never ask you for a sign, God. Like, I'm so holy, I'm so good, I would never ask you for a sign. But the real reason is because he had reached out to the Assyrians to help him. Are you following this story? Nations are coming against Judah. Rather than go to God, he calls out to Assyria. He pays them off. He takes money out of the temple. He takes money out of the treasury to pay off the Assyrians. Because who needs God when you have gold? And that's when God drops the prophecy. This is Isaiah 7, 14. 
All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. You don't want a sign from me. I'm going to give you the sign. I will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. See, there's a context for this, for this prophecy that we read in the book of Matthew. It's pointing to deliverance from God. It's pointing to Jesus as, as not just someone who's going to be born in a manger that we're going to remember 2,000 years from now. We're going to put up a photo area in the back and, and do all these things to kind of draw our attention to this historical figure. See, what God through Isaiah is doing is he's telling Isaiah that there's, there's someone coming who is going to deliver you. His name is Emmanuel, and that means God with us. And then again, if we were to flip back and forth between 2 Kings 16 and the next few chapters of Isaiah, what we would learn is the Assyrians defeat the nations coming against Judah. They defeat them. And then King Ahaz does this strange thing. He goes to Damascus to meet the leader of the Assyrians. And while he's there, he sees this amazing altar to Baal. It looks way cooler than the altar to God in Jerusalem. And what do you think he does? Contacts the priests back in Jerusalem and is like, you know what, there's this altar here and I want one just like it in Jerusalem. I know that God told us what the altar in the temple should look like, but this one is way cooler than the one that's in Jerusalem. So he has the altar in Jerusalem removed, this new altar uh, put into place, and then he makes offerings on it. Not to God, but to the Assyrian gods. What do you think Assyria does next? Well, they attack Judah, of course. See, I think there's this life lesson. This really isn't the Christmassy part of the message. I think there's this life lesson here. When you place your hope and trust in something other than God, don't be surprised when that thing becomes your master. Did you hear that? See, each one of us has, an op- has a choice to make. We have an opportunity Each one of us can decide, are we going to trust in God or are we going to trust in something else? And every single time when we choose to trust in that other thing other than God, don't be surprised when it becomes your master. How many times have you seen that in the lives of other people? How many times have you seen that in your own life? See, Ahaz thinks he's doing this little thing with the Assyrians. They're going to save him, and there's going to be no repercussions. Isn't that how we go into sin? We see a sin. It's not going to be that big of a deal. We tell ourselves. And then the next thing we know, we're paying the consequences of that. That sin has become our master. Over the next few chapters, God tells Ahaz that by partnering with Assyria, He is sealing the fate of the people of Judah because Judah is taken over by Assyria. 
Assyria is actually going to be God's tool to judge Judah. Doesn't that sound like we're back in the book of Judges? See, people who are consistently disobedient are going to be consistently judged by God. Isaiah 8 ends in a pretty dark way. It says that God's people will be covered in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. But Isaiah 9 says something different. Verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. So however, Judah, however you're feeling right now, taken over by the Assyrians, taken captive by the Assyrians, it's not going to last forever. There's a time that's going to come where you're going to be delivered. And that deliverer is going to be a child who is going to have authority over all things. And see, what God's people needed to hear in that moment, I think is the thing that we need to hear every moment of our lives. God didn't just come to deliver us from the the immediate hardship of our life. See, God came to deal with our sin. God came to deal with the actual problems that we have in our lives. And as bad as that hardship is, as bad as that illness is, as bad as that life situation is, the thing that Jesus ultimately is here to fix is not those things. The thing that Jesus is here to fix is what's wrong in our hearts. Jesus is here to deliver us from our sin. All empires are going to fall, is what God says to Ahaz through Isaiah. They're all going to fall. Because Assyria is going to be replaced by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to be replaced by someone else. And eventually the Greeks are going to do it. And then eventually the Romans are going to be there. And there's going to be this consistent empire constantly taking over God's people. Where does it end? When does it end? This is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. Can you imagine what this must have been like for the people of Judah to hear this hope? That there was actually going to be a government that would rule fairly and rule justly and deliver people from their real problems? He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. See, the God that we saw in the book of Judges, who is constantly pursuing his people, the mercy and the grace and the love that he showed for us is fulfilled in this child. 
All of the things that the people of God are longing for is fulfilled in this child. And we call him Jesus. You have probably figured that out. We call him Jesus. And that's why we celebrate the Christmas season. This isn't just some cultural, historical thing that we all get caught up in once a year. We are celebrating the arrival of the person who is going to fix everything, who is going to resolve everything in our lives. And this is available to us. The angel in Matthew 1 described it perfectly. He said, you'll name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You've probably heard that phrase before, save people from their sins. Have you, ever, have you ever really wondered what it meant? I mean, it sounds nice. It sounds good. But what does that mean, that Jesus has saved us from our sins? I would love for you to flip to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is in the New Testament. While you're turning there, here's a little background. Paul wrote this letter to a church that was falling away from God because they believed a false gospel. See, we tend to think that the, the New Testament church, like, oh, if we could just be like them, everything would be wonderful. Well, not the church in Galatia because they believed a false gospel. So we don't want to be like them. And the gospel that they were believing was a gospel of the law. See, they had convinced themselves if they could just keep the law perfectly, that they would find salvation. If they would just be good enough, according to the Old Testament law, they would find salvation. They would earn their salvation because they would be good people and they wouldn't need Jesus. That's not very different from today, is it? There are plenty of people in our culture and maybe some in this room today that have zero need for Jesus because you keep the law. You're a good person, at least in comparison to someone else, right? Because that's always our measuring stick. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that our measuring stick is always Adolf Hitler? Arguably, compared to Adolf Hitler, you know, we're doing pretty good. But that's not our measuring stick. Jesus is. And Paul tells them and he tells us that the law doesn't actually save them. It just points out their sins. But what does that mean? How many of you have been driving down the road above the speed limit and you see a police car coming your way? What do you immediately do? Hope, no, you don't slam on the brakes, then he's going to know. You tap him gently, right? You get off the accelerator, you ease into it. Maybe you slink down a little bit like you're going to disappear in the seat. We do that because we're guilty. You know that, right? See, that's what it means that the law reveals our sin. That's what it means that the law reveals our guilt. Because we know, like, 
I know how fast I'm going. Like, isn't that always the craziest question the guy asks you? Do you know how fast you're going? I know exactly how fast I was going. Right? We're in this, we're, we're in this moment, and, and we know that we are guilty. We know that we have broken the law because the law is revealing that to us. It is designed to reveal to us our sin. See, that's how much God loves you, is he tells you what it looks like to love him. He tells you what it looks like to be obedient to him. Sometimes we think like we have to just figure this whole thing out with God on our own. And he tells us exactly what it means to be in relationship with him. The law reveals our guilt. And then in those first few chapters of Galatians, Paul, Paul tells them, like he reveals this to them, you're keeping the law and you're way off base. The purpose of the law is just to reveal how much of a sinner you are and your need for God. And then he says something, something really strange. This is verse 3 in Galatians 4. He says, and that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Well, what are those principles? See, these are quite like these are the kind of things we ought to ask when we're reading the Bible. Like, what does that mean? I think when when we feel guilt because we have sinned, we do one of two things. So I'm guilty of sin, and I'm going to do one of two things. The first thing we do is we take religious actions. In the Old Testament, what they would do as a response to their sin is they would make offerings and they would make sacrifices. They would go to the temple at certain times. Now, they were called to do that, especially the Jews were called to do that. But it's not just the Jews that gave offerings and sacrifices. See, throughout history, people have always made offerings and sacrifices to worship something, to respond to the guilt that they have deep inside of them. So the first response is to take religious actions. I think today we see that, well, in our culture. I feel guilty about something I've done wrong. I know I'm, I know I'm a bad person. I mean, not as bad as Hitler, but I'm a pretty I'm a bad person. So what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church. I'm going to go to church that will that somehow, like, that will make me a good person. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. Right? I'm going to take these religious actions, participate in religious activities, because what I've done is I've convinced myself in heaven like there's this great scale. And as long as I have a few more things on the good side than on the bad side, I'm good. That's, that's what some of us believe. That's what people in our world believe. And so if I just do enough religious actions, because that's what good people do. Like, I'm good. I'll just be a good moral person. Only the problem with that, when we read through the entire Bible, is, is those things just made people like ceremonially clean. It didn't really do anything about their sin. It didn't really resolve the sin problem. It basically was just like, 
God was sort of like, if you, I want you to do these sacrifices and make these offerings on certain times throughout the year. And essentially, as long as you do those things, like, I will, I'll sort of overlook your bad behavior. Like, it's still there. But as long as you do these things, because I know that Jesus is coming and I've got a whole plan and he's not plan B, I'm going to kind of overlook this because it didn't actually deal with their sin. And then their people's religious actions only became more and more intense. Did you notice what King Ahaz did? So he was bringing offerings and sacrifices to the temple for Baal worship. And then he also sacrificed his kid in the fire. See, because there comes a time where we feel so bad for our sins that the things that we're doing to try and fix them, and, and, and it doesn't work, so we have to do more and more things, right? We have to go to greater lengths, greater extremes to pay for our sins. And that's why the ancient world was surrounded by child sacrifice. Because there's not much more you can go to beyond that to pay for your sins. And I know we're miles away, right? I know for us in this room, we're miles away from child sacrifice. We just think if we read the Bible once a week, we're good with God. I would argue that those two religious actions aren't that much different in terms of actually bringing us into a relationship with God outside of a relationship with Jesus. But here's the other thing. If we don't take religious actions, for many of us, what we do is we become self-righteous. And there it is. I don't sin like Hitler. I'm pretty good. I don't sin like my neighbor, who doesn't turn his Christmas music off until 10 p.m., I don't sin like the people who live across the street from me who are going to be firing, shooting off fireworks beginning December 26th for all hours of the night, right? They become self-righteous. And we think that as long as we don't sin like those people, we're pretty good. And that did not work out very well for the people in the book of Judges. The example, you remember the example that we used? Someone lost in the woods with a compass that only points to himself. Right? A compass points to true north. At least it should. And if you are living your life with yourself at the center, you are lost in the woods with a compass that only points to you. And you will not be able to get yourself out of the woods. Aren't you glad you came today for a Christmas series? See, this is the exact same spot that God's people found themselves in Isaiah chapter 8. The darkest of gloom. The most hopeless of hopeless places. Wondering, what do we do? How do we respond? What's the fix? I love Galatians 4. Verse 4, and begins with one of my favorite words. One of my desires is, I'm going to do a series sometime called The Butts of God. Sorry. But listen to what this says. 
But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were the slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children because we are his children and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. See, that's why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate Jesus. Not as some historical, cultural holiday where we all just feel better because we give a little more. What we're celebrating is the arrival of Jesus Christ who fixes everything. And when we enter into that relationship with him, we get the fullness of God expressed to us. We get every aspect of the reality of who God is when we accept accept Jesus. What does that look like for you? How do we think that relationship goes? Like when we recognize that we're in the darkest of gloom and we recognize we are sinners in need of a savior. What does that mean for us? What, what are we supposed to do? I thought of the story of, actual, of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You don't have to be a Christian to at least be familiar with that story. But a man had two sons one older, one younger. The younger goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. I want you to give me what you're going to give me when you die. And because the loving father loves his son, he gives him this inheritance. He goes off and wastes it all. At some point he comes to his senses and he realizes that he needs to return home. See, do you see yourself in this story? you're not the father. You see yourself in the story as the younger son who realizes that I have a problem and the problem is me and I want to go home, but man, how, what's dad going to do when I show up? How's he going to respond? How is he going to treat me when I show up at his doorstep? But when you read through the story, we see a picture of God. See, God sees us when we come to him. God is filled with love and compassion for us. He runs to us and he embraces us and he kisses us. And when we start talking about our unworthiness, Yeah, but God, I'm so bad. Yeah, but God, if you only knew. Yeah, but. Like those things are true, but in this story that that Luke is quoting Jesus as telling, in this story, the father's like, you know, it's not time for that right now. Put these clothes on. Cast off your old self. Put these clothes on. Here's a ring. Let me remind you of who you belong to. Let me give you an identity. 
He puts shoes on, the, on his youngest son's feet. You know why? Because a slave goes barefoot. So what God is doing is he's welcoming his youngest son home and he's welcoming us home. When we come to him, he provides the fattened calf a sacrifice. He creates a feast and invites us to eat. And then at the end of this story, we wonder why. Why would God do this? Have you asked that question? Why would God take me back? Doesn't he know what I've done? Yes, he's God. Why would God do this? Why would he accept me in this way? Because we were once dead in our sins, and now we are alive. We were once lost, and now we're found. And God is telling us to come home. Come back to him. And this is what Christmas is all about. This is what the prophecies of Jesus were all about. This is what Jesus came to do. Not just be a model for living, an example for us to follow, a good teacher and a long line of other good teachers. But Jesus came to give us new life. The Christmas story isn't some tale that we just gather around once a year and celebrate. It's something that we live our lives every day of the year in celebration of. Jesus isn't just the deliverer from the bad things in our lives. He's our deliverer from sin. And that's why he's here. That's why he came. And I just love these words. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He wasn't just those things for God's people as they were being taken over by the Assyrians. He wasn't just those things for, for God's people as they, were, um, as they were taken captive by the Romans. He is these things for God's people everywhere. He's these things for you. He can be these things for you. He wants to be these things for you. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is just this. Will we allow him to be these things for us? Will we set aside what we think Christmas is about? Will we set aside what we think Jesus is about? Will we set aside what we think Christianity is about? And follow the baby in the manger who is the ruler of all things. God, I'm thankful that we offer more than a historical cultural celebration in December. I'm thankful that you came for more than that. You came to deliver us from our sins. And I, I pray, I ask you, God, to demonstrate these things to us. For those, who, for those who don't know you, I pray that this Christmas season, amidst the, amidst the trash under the tree, they would see a baby who's come to deliver us 
not just from the hardships and realities of life, but has come to deliver us from the sin that dwells inside of us so that we can be whole, so that we can be new, so that we can be his. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.